This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spiritualist Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And I am super excited to have my very special guest today, Raghunath. I hope you don't mind me mentioning Ray Capo of Youth of Today and a lot of amazing yoga and punk rock and hardcore fame. But fame doesn't really, I don't know if that that, that vibes in the our punk rock thing, but... It's part. Of, it's part of what you do. It's something. Part of, it's part of who you are, and we're going to talk about that. But I did. You have a, a really brief bio that I wanted to share um, from your website that I know just newly launched. Um, that says Raghunath tours the world, leading kirtans and the practical applications of yogic philosophy. He annually takes a group uh, excuse me, pilgrimage through holy places of India, and. Uh, that was yeah. It's a pretty brief bio. I know there's so much more to get to. You know what? Um, that's not my official bio. The guy, the web guy, I think that just took a few things online. I haven't updated it yet. But so what a, else? Why you can do this whole show could be my bio. I think it's sort of interesting <laughs> for your people as well as um, our past. Our right. past. Our past will cross. Yes, and pasts have crossed again. At Wanderlust Snowshoe this year. Yeah. I was really gra- grateful was... about it because, you know, I've been teaching yoga. You know, I started teaching yoga in uh, Beverly Hills of all places. My background is I'm a, a punk punk kid from the Lower East Side going to CBGBs in the Lower East Side in the early 80s. And so somehow I ended up Beverly, in Beverly Hills teaching yoga <laughs> and became a very popular teacher there. Um, and then uh, – no one had any clue of my past punk rock life. Right. And I sort of didn't know to share it because Beverly Hills was sort of like a peculiar place to share stuff like that. So generally I led a parallel life and that those bands were still big. They're still strangely popular. Um, you know, I'm doing a reunion this week, you know, a 30 year anniversary for Revelation Records and right. sold out. You know, and you know, in, in Los Angeles, and then in Philadelphia, Shelter, my other band, is doing a big reunion on July 30th, and uh, it's 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 something I don't do regularly, but basically, those bands they were like seminal bands in that music genre, so they still have some life, you know, they still have some life to them. Strange, they all get some royalties occasionally, um, and what'll happen is 
the two worlds never collided, especially there in Beverly Hills. But once I moved back east, every now and then, the, then in a the yoga class, someone goes, wait a second. I know who you are. <laughs> and, uh, which that's like been the story of my life, because it's not like I'm John Lennon where people are, you know, Michael Jackson, people dra- jumping me and mauling me on the streets. Right. And uh, my wife, who knows nothing about my musical background, um, when we were married, every now and then, some person would just go, holy crap, oh my God, you're you. Like, yeah. you know, but it wasn't every day, but it was like, but when they see you, it's like bigger than life. And I think because the scene that we were in, you know, um, it was at a time where people were like, you know, teenagers going through their life crisis. Who am I? Their identity. What do I want to do with my life? And uh, both those bands I were in were very sort of like pivotal, I think, in a lot of kids to like make certain changes. You know, Youth of Today oh, was yeah. big in clean living, vegetarianism. Yeah. And um, those are big lifestyle changes which still affect people 40 years later, 30 Hugely. years later. And that's why like I – not fully but like when I was so jazzed to finally meet you. It's like, yes, Raghunath. But in my heart, I told you like – it's Ray, you know, from my teenage years, like, oh man, like so cool. I get to meet you and, and see you. And, uh, it was really special to finally like share a little time with you out in, in West Virginia recently. Um, but I mean, and I like to connect people who know that scene as well too. Right. And that snowshoe in the middle of West Virginia, I met about five people, at least five people that right. were like, Hey, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you can tell them covered with tattoos and they're, you know, they do, yeah, they do yoga or they, you know, show up with their girlfriend or husband or something like that. And yeah. Yeah. And they, they heard about the crossover, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you and I it's even, a it's a, it's a kind of natural intersection for a lot of people. And you and I discussed that because for us, um, when we're finding punk and hardcore, we're looking for something more, something deeper, right? Like some, this world is so messed up. I, I need to make sense of it. How can I make sense of it? And that's Probably a start. Me, we needed like, it was our alternative out of mainstream culture, which like, this can't be right. right. And then we turned to alternative music or alternative lifestyle. Right. And then we sort of get drawn to like band. And we say, wait a second, this band is alternative, but they're worse than the mainstream yeah. or like the things <laughs> propagating are worse than the mainstream. And so we got drawn into things of, you know, cleaner living and, yeah, uh, you know. So tell me a little bit about that. I, we're going to jump into the yoga because I know that's your main passion today. But I also honor that you respect your roots and you do these reunion shows and and you know how excited kids get to go see Youth of Today again in Shelter. And I know Kylie, our friend, or others know her as Kate One Hundred Eight. Just like did a few songs at a One Hundred Eight reunion and people were freaking out because that was huge, man. Like that's a deeply instilled part of our youth you know and that's yeah. still with us today so youth of today uh, that was totally unintended but i mean you know if you could share a little bit because you know we're both from connecticut you know and and i know youth of today wasn't your first band but you, you just even briefly talk a bit about your your experience with that and how that led you eventually into whether it was revelation records and then i know krishna cool. consciousness i'd love to hear that backstory very interesting um, time historically yeah. for the music industry. You know, this was the time where there were like huge record labels and um, it was almost like untouched by a kid who wanted to be in a band. I was looking for an alternative. By the time I hit 10th grade growing up in Danbury, Connecticut, I wanted a sort of like a secret door out of that world and into 
some mysterious world. And because I had older brothers and sisters that lived in Manhattan or New York, I and my parents are from New York City, that I used to just visit hmm. um, New York City on weekends and start to wander around the Greenwich Village, the East Village, and started, and you know, I was a music fan, and I started stumbling upon you know, these underground nightclubs. And back then there was like no age limits. You can go to Danceteria or the Mud Club right. or Irving Plaza or the Ritz, you know, or the Ritz and um, Peppermint Lounge. And we used to just like go to clubs, see live bands and everyone, every, the U2 was playing at the Ritz. It's like, uh, <laughs> what's the Ritz called? Webster Hall. You Webster know what Hall, I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, you know the, go, the Go-Go's, Bow Wow Wow. All, this was like early 80s things have gotten, you know, Black Flag. And then next thing you know, you're sort of like you run into some, uh, you know, you're 15 years old. You go back on a Monday to your normal high school and everyone's like, what do you do this weekend? Oh, what a party. You had a keg party. I was like, man, I was up all night watching these bands. These guys are like teenagers from like and it was like shocking when you, when I first started seeing like punk and hardcore back then, which was sort of like at its sort of birth or new birth. Yeah, there was nothing in the world like it. And I remember that first show where I saw. The Beastie Boys' first band, and these guys are my age, so their first band was called The Young and the Useless, and um, they were playing. You know, these are bands that no one had records out. Yeah. And then they started, that was the year they started manufacturing. People started manufacturing their own EPs, extended play, seven inch, and you could make your own covers. And it was like a manufacturing your own record. It was like the beginning of taking the music industry back into your own hands. Mm away from big record producers, away from major labels. And the band said, you know, I'm going to start a band. We're going to put out our own record. We're going to make a thousand of them. We're going to sell them to our fans. And there was a whole scene for that. Yeah. And it was amazing. And and um, that was the beginning, at least in punk and hardcore scene, of manufacturing your own records. There was like only three records in New York. There was like Young and the Useless, Kraut, which was a, a great band from yeah. Queens, and Heart Attack was another great band. No one had records out. Um. And so anyway, we what do you call it? I became a fan of that. And a girl was with me at the time said, Ray, you could do that. You could get up on stage like these guys. Are you? I was like, you know, I think I could do that. And that after that show, I went back, grabs a bunch of like alternative freaks from my high school, which we were like sort of our own freaky self. And this was before like a punk thing was even anywhere near anything. Like there was nothing. If you were a punk in a high school in Connecticut in 1982, Consider your ass kicked. You know what I mean? It was, it was that ridiculous. You know yeah. What I mean? It was just like unheard of. And, you know, but that made us like dig our heels in deeper. You know what? I want nothing to do with you people. I'm going to go to New York every weekend. I'm going to go there during the summer and hang out. We developed the whole like second life. Um, and so anyway, from there on, to, to, to wind the story quicker, by the time I – I was in a band, but my band that got really popular quick was Youth of Today. Yeah. And Youth of Today was very bold statements about we don't drink, we don't smoke, um, and into sense control, the twist of spirituality, and we became and strict vegetarians. And at that time, no one was sort of like, you know, the interesting thing. I was just talking to my friend who's in advertising, and he's like, "You are like should go into advertising world and branding." And I was thinking everything we did was branding before we understood the concept of branding. Right. But the record label we starred from that was a type of branding that, you know, it was it was a look, it was a fashion, it was a language, it was a hairdo. It was like, you know, 
it, it was a it was, it were, there were logos and uh, fonts and stuff and we did it without even really thinking about it it just became that and from that statement a very bold statement of clean living in a very very unclean living scene we became hated and with everybody that hates you there's a bunch of people that are like that's pretty cool yeah and like sort of a bubble within a punk scene because when people think of punk they think of like insanity and craziness and you know, lethargy and a drunk guy on the street with leopard skin pants and, you know, sleeping out all day. But we were actually a very clean cut, self-control, looking higher, positive mental attitude. And it sort of like took the scene by storm because it happened so fast. And then it, it spread very quickly internationally. Yeah. To the point it was like, you know, four years ago I did a reunion in St. Moscow and St. Petersburg and stuff like that to like sold out shows. It was just like weird, peculiar things I would never think would happen because it was never a plan. Right. We just, these are important principles we've got to talk about. And then so many other bands formed around us yeah. sort of within that community that we said, you know what? We had some fourth, you know, foresight thinking, you know what? Who knows how long this bubble is going to go? We should document this, sonically document it. And we started releasing all the bands on our own label called Revelation Records. As a matter of fact, I'm leaving tomorrow to do a 30-year reunion with the band. We have four, there's four headlining nights, so we play the first, um, sold, you know, the whole weekend sold out. We yeah. play the first, play the whole weekend, uh, um, we play Thursday night, and then all some other bands from the label will play every other night. So this is like a peculiar phenomenon that 30 years later people still give a crap the people that come to the show are in their 40s or they're 18 or 17. <laughs> Very peculiar. And yeah. you know, I was just in, I was just teaching yoga in Italy last month and uh, and Switzerland and Germany, and I ran into fans who were like, "Oh yeah, we're flying out for that show. Of course, we're going to fly out for that show." It was one of those type of things. Yeah, I mean, because it has such deep roots for so many of us. I know I said that earlier, but really, like. You, now you and I discussed this in West Virginia. You were the generation right before me, but I too grew up in suburban Connecticut. So while you would pave the way and bands like Inside Out and you know a whole bunch of uh, Burn and a bunch of other Rev bands, um, I came up that next generation where same deal, very suburban, athletic uh, community where if you're not partying or an athlete, like I have to give credit to my friend Bernie. He was. In the, and is in this incredible band Cable on Hydrahead Records. And I started learning about not just Youth of Today, but Snapcase and Neurosis and Isis and all these genres that started like morphing and like Mouthpiece and Chokehold and right. of course Earth Crisis and Strife. And it's just like the list goes on and on and on. And, uh, and that's what we were doing, same as you. And but but when you said eighty two, I'm thinking, well, shit, this was like ninety two, ninety three. Yeah. And uh, I actually just posted a video from ninety five. I came across of freaking Earth Crisis at the Bristol Skate Park here in Connecticut, and it was just like, <laughs> and I see myself, and I see all my friends, and we're like fourteen or thirteen, and it's like, look at us, like. But that meant the world to us because we weren't identifying with our surroundings you know and so of course like that stuff still means so much to us today well most of us at least so yeah for sure it's like like you create us what to speak of if there were sort of like ethical principles or principles like i mean we'll get messages 
to this day of like, oh, uh, you saved my life 20 years ago. I was addicted to A, B, C, and D. Yeah. And you spoke at a time when I really need to hear it. And sometimes people really need to hear a message of goodwill, caring, concern, wisdom when they're 18 years old. And they're not going to hear it from their dad or they're not going to hear it from their mom. Or maybe their dad's got his own problems or their mom's got their own problems or they're divorced and their kids are struggling. So, you know, it could have come off corny what we did in retrospect. I'm completely – and it was probably. Let's hear a 19-year-old kid telling you, don't drink. You shouldn't drink it. You know, drink, drink crackles like, screw you. I'm 19 years old. But they, they were sort of like – I always had a strong spiritual calling from yeah. child. And uh, I was open to different paths. And my idea was if you write songs that have spiritual messages – They'll, they'll stand the test of time forever. And I used everything from Bible, Buddhist sutras, uh, New Testament, uh, Bhagavad Gita to sort of help me, like, guide me. And you can see it, like, in the lyrics that you read. Yeah. And it was corny. And it was also like a teenager's version of reading wisdom literature. You know what I mean? Of course. In the sense, sense control. Control your mind, you know. You know, uh, don't screw people over, you know, right. uh, you know, uh, uh, see the see the lighter side of things. Don't you know, don't you know, don't find fault with people, stuff like that. Yeah. And it was basically it's an extended message of what I'm doing now. Right. In yoga community and teaching sacred literature and stuff like that. It was just for a different audience. And so that's why I morphed into, you know, uh, leaving the music scene at one point and then um, becoming a monk for about six years living in an ashram for total yeah. like seven and a half years. So let's talk about that because so hardcore inevitably it led you to play in shelter, which is a Krishna conscious band and you know, and equal vision records is happening around this time. We also have bands like one and Prima and you know, other great bands. So I'm sure, or I'm guessing that was the time where you were starting to either find or really, um, take your path seriously. Um, or am I off on that? I'd love to hear no, how you, you... You know, the timeline was sort of like, I got to the point of, well, I didn't really want to create a scene of a bunch of people that just are self-righteous about right. not drinking or not smoking or not eating meat. To me, it wasn't about just saying no to everything. It was about, I want to spiritually evolve. So for me, that calling was to let go of these things. I had to purify my consciousness, purify my palate, purify my thoughts. So for me, it was sort of like, I'm on a path, but it became really quickly. And this happens with everything. It happens with this music scene. It happens with uh, veganism. It happens with animal rights. It happens with raw foodism. It happens with religion. It's like whenever you do something for self-betterment, it's, if it's done without humility woven into it, yeah. we become incredibly arrogant. Yeah. Who wants to – like have you ever met a vegan that hates your guts? You know what I mean? <laughs> Or, or anyone, a religionist that hates your guts, or you know, oh, you're not raw, you're you're vegan, but you're not a raw foodist, you know, you don't juice, you know, you're not gluten free. It's whatever it is. I do it for self betterment, but it just becomes an ego trip. And my theory with that is, if what you're not, or how I teach my students, if what you're doing for self betterment is not making you love more people all the time. You're doing something wrong, and especially if it's turning you, I hate this group of people, then you're doing something very, very wrong. 
you know. So that's it's it, it, it's sort of like a red flag goes up. I'm into this self betterment, and I should love more. I should be more tolerant. I shouldn't be less tolerant. I should yeah. be more tolerant. If anything, I want to be hard on is that what I got to work hard on myself. I can be strict with myself and completely lenient and tolerant with others. That's the mood, you know, and that's the mood how where I teach from, and. Um, so in this straight edge scene, especially in the animal rights scene, it became just like an ego trip. And I realized I didn't want any part of this. Mm. And for me, it was and, and there was a problem because I was a guy who sort of spearheaded the whole thing. And there was a time I just said, you know what, I I'm ready to I'll, I'm going to quit it all because I think there's something higher calling me. And I, at that time, I went to India. I got very serious, became like a celibate monk for about six years. And um, and it wasn't until a few years later, and the studying of the Gita, which is such a beautiful, you know, you know, and the the, the seminal literature on yoga, is that when you study the Gita, it doesn't teach you to renounce what you're great at. It's see what you see, see what your see what your gift is, and use that gift in a way that purifies your consciousness instead of degrades the consciousness. Mm. We all have gifts, and that gift, for example, suppose you're charming. You know what I mean? I mean, you can use charm to be a complete jackass. Yeah. You know, many times have a person dated charming jerk, you know? But you can also use charm in a wonderful way to change the world. You know, Gandhi was incredibly charming. Yeah. You know, what I mean? there's people who have charm that use that charm for great things. So it's not about that charm's good or bad. It's sort of like electricity. It can freeze like a freezer or it can burn like a stove or a knife can kill or it can save a person's life in an operation. So the concept of what am I going to – it's not what I got. It's what I do with what I got. So when I started really imbibing the Gita, I was like, oh, I get it. I gave up music. Music, fame, popularity, those were just energies like electricity. It's not necessarily evil. But if it's not channeled in the right way, it can burn you up. Right. And that's why so many of the world religions have all this thing about the dangers of wealth or the dangers of associating with very beautiful people or being attached to, you know. It, it, it's not that those things are so evil. It's that people can't handle those energies. Right. So if you take those energies and use them in a way that's purifying, music is music's divine if you use it in a divine way. Wealth can be divine. That's why they in India they say wealth is Lakshmi, because Lakshmi is part of Vishnu, you know. So Lakshmi should be used to serve Vishnu, just like the when you study the epic Ramayana, mm. Sita is Lakshmi, Ravana steals Lakshmi or Sita, and Hanuman returns Sita or Lakshmi to Ram. Right. So the idea is we all have some great qualities. They're all going to be completely different. Um, as you write or I do music or somebody teaches or someone's an artist or someone's in define whatever it is there's some special gifts that we have yeah. and we got we have to give back with those gifts so that was the idea when I started Shelter was I can't bury this stuff this music runs through me and I was an influential person and that influence can be used in a wonderful way and if I learn how to harness that fame then envy won't arise, greed won't arise, lust won't arise, anger won't arise, kamakota, loba, moha, all these things that the yogis and the sages talk about, they won't arise if I use them in a proper channel. And that was my goal with shelter. And it was um, pretty fascinating. Yeah. 
as that we were all very strict monks. Yeah. And we'd go on tour and we'd come back and we'd go back. We'd go out on tour, we'd come back. Then we'd go to India on sabbatical and just study and just, you know, you know, have this strict sadhana regulated life. And then we'd go back on tour and it was just, it was just like that for years. I, and, I dude, I remember seeing you guys many times. I think it's Studio One Fifty Eight, and there was, you were there. You had your table set up. There was the Gita as it is. There were the mala beads. There were the tongue scrapers. It was like the oh, whole. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, it was called our Bizarre, our bizarre Bazaar, yes. where we'd go to India, buy everything in the bazaar, and just sell it. And that's how we'd support ourselves on the road. We'd just live in the road in a van. Yeah. You want to hear something else pretty funny? Because the concept in, you know, in ashram life is health. And this is so funny because Americans have this crazy idea of health. It's like. Oh man, I've been eating like crap all these years. Now I'm going to eat a bar because a bar is really healthy. It's like so insane. Like a bar is healthy. You know what's healthy? Food cooked with love for people that you love and eaten with people that you love. So this concept of love behind the food is such a big part of Vedic philosophy, of yoga philosophy. And so therefore, there's a whole concept wherever you go to holy towns, people are giving you prashad, food offered with love, cooked with love, offered to the deity. And then distributed. So on when we were on tour with monks, we would never eat food that was cooked by people of, not of spiritual consciousness. Mm. So we wouldn't eat at restaurants. We wouldn't eat prepackaged foods. We'd bring our own Brahmin cook with us and set up like a candy stove wherever we'd go. We wouldn't eat packaged anything. We, we'd eat fruit. That would be the closest thing. Otherwise, we'd cook all our own grains make all our own chapatis or flatbreads on the yeah. road. And that's how we traveled around the whole United States so and Europe. Yeah. You guys it must was fascinating. And we were all celibate monks. Yeah. It might yeah. have been the first time historically that any band was. And I'm wondering if you guys cuz I I honestly remember I covered the first two warp tours back in the early 90s. And I vaguely, or not vaguely, very specifically, the polar opposite, remember there being um, Krishna conscious people in the back cooking food. And I don't know if that was because one of the bands brought them there. You know, I'm thinking like Quicksand was on that tour and Deftones and uh, I don't think Chromex did the first two, but um, you guys were not either of those, were you? The first couple? We played Asbury Park. We played a few warp tours. Maybe that's not, what it was. Not the whole tour, it's just yeah. one off shows. Yeah, these were more up in the uh, Northampton Mass area, but I remember like how very serious they were about the food. And um, that was my first time actually learning about how important it is to cook. And then later on, reading Ram Das and learning from Maharaji about, you know, never eat anything unless it's made with love. And, um, and he would often. Oh, you know, difference. Yeah. Makes all, and we were so concerned about like I'm gonna eat spirulina and chlorella, you know what I mean? But it's like, or we're overly concerned about, uh, yeah. It, it, it's just it's just a warped idea of health, I think. Yeah. What's going on, you know, um, and then there's all, but but it's everything too. It's everything that we put into our ears. I mean, our not just our mouth, but our ears and our eyes. Like, what, watch what we consume through mm-hmm. our. Watch the media that we consume or the books that we read um, because it's starting to create our whole consciousness. Yeah. The way I raise, you know, I have five kids too. So, um, you know, the raising of my children, we're very careful the media they consume and they don't, you know, we don't grow up with TVs. We don't grow up occasionally let them watch a movie or something. We're very careful about the movie they consume and it keeps them at least as children 
it keeps them children. Yeah. Right now, culture, it just makes kids become adults very quick. Sure. It gets very creepy as well. Yeah. Um, um, and so, yeah, we have this whole very, you know, conscious way of raising kids. Um, and so tell me about that. I mean, you will go back to the to yoga and what brought you there. But um, I know you own a farm in upstate New York. And um, tell us, you know. I would love we, to hear more about a, uh, I can see it out our window right now. But um, Beautiful. we have a place called Super Soul Farm. It's been sort of like a dream of ours for like 20 years. Yeah. And we want to start a center where we can teach from, where we have um, teach classes on yoga philosophy, yoga lifestyle, kirtan music, um, sacred literature, um, uh, and also how to live with the land and learn how to assess the land. Where's a good spot for water catchment? Where it gets a lot? Where does it uh, have more sun? How can we farm organically and use um, use the oil, the, the the soil that we have, and how can we um, remediate the soil so it's useful? What trees do you have on the property? What grows well here? How can animals be? Because I understand veganism in the sense like we've screwed animals so bad that we want nothing to do with it. So it happens with a lot of like people who want to do better is they want to they want to um it's a, like you create reactionary movements where we want, okay we've abused animals now we want nothing to do with them mm. actually no we can have a symbiotic relationship with animals symbiotic relationship with plants a symbiotic relationship with other humans you know what i mean we just don't just because i've had bitter relationships doesn't mean i should cut out all relationships right. it means we should have nurturing relationships so we have a lot of animals on the property. For example, we have ducks. Ducks do this wonderful thing of eating slugs. And you don't have a slug problem in your garden. You have a, you have a duck problem. You're just down on ducks. You know, um, Chickens have an incredible um, uh, ability to be manure spreaders. They get into manure and they just spread it around. They also eat ticks. You know what I mean? If people eat eggs, they have eggs. We don't, um, you know... Uh, and I think half my family is divided about eating eggs, but I don't eat eggs. But you can also use eggs for the other animal. My dog eats the eggs, or we you can bury the eggs and fertilize the soil. Um, and then we have uh, peacocks, just because they're beautiful to look at. Guinea fowls. We have sheep. Sheep are incredible mowers. They're mowers that don't use uh, gasoline or petroleum or fossil fuels. They eat grass. And yeah. what do they give back? They give manure which makes the soil 80% more fertile than if you had no manure on it. So we're caught up and so we're trying to create like these closed loop systems where everything you have is giving some return, giving some yield and um, you're putting it back to, into itself. Yeah. Whereas otherwise we're, we create these systems where like, okay, we want our lawn to grow. So we put fertilizer on the lawn that fertilizer ruins the soil. It contaminates the water table. Your whole place becomes toxic. Or um, we use uh, hydraulics for everything. We need tractors for everything. I'm not saying like we never use the things, but we should see the long-term vision for where things are going. Mm -hmm. And the more we break out of a natural cycle of things, the more we create more problems. We don't create less problems. These time-saving devices are creating more problems. So what, not just myself, but a lot of people who live up where we live, which is upstate New York, there's just a lot of like New Yorkers who are just like, you know what? I'm opting out. 
I'm opting out of living in the city. I'm opting out of raising my kids in the city uh, where they're precocious and grow up too quick. And they're just like absorbed in their iPhones and their iPads at an early age um, without any discernment. I mean, adults have hardly any discernment when it comes to social and stuff like that. So what to speak of an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old who are getting like the public schools giving them iPads in kindergarten. And it develops this, you know, and then you're watching so much intense video games or, or movies. You send a kid outside to a waterfall yeah. and they'll be like, this is boring. You know what I mean? Because they're so overstimulated. Get the kids back connecting with nature. That's their school. You know, to learn how to plant things. That's their school. To learn how to relate with animals. That's their school. Yeah. To learn how to knit or to to make, to make you know, we just shear, we have to shear the sheep because it's, it's you know, it's getting too hot. So we shear the sheep, sit them down, take the wool, clean the wool, and then spin the wool. And then knit with the wool. You know what knitting is? All these old, you know, primitive skills, yeah. each one of them are meditative. Oh, yeah. Each it's like meditation. So we don't say abandon animals. We say work with, the, work with animals, you know, and love the animals. Yeah. You know. You gave a, uh, a really great story, and I hope you don't mind sharing it again. Um, about sheep and in relation to how sometimes on the farm as their wool grows, you know, it be, they can knock a fence over and that can let uh, like a wolf. And I think you used a wolf or a predator as an example. And you were sharing in relation to, you know, taking care of ourselves. And uh, yeah, I don't want to give that, too much away. I remember if, that story. It was in relationship to uh, self-respect. Self-respect. Self-respect, and I was using the analogy of the sheep because sometimes due to our own lack of self-worth, you know, I was talking about this in class this morning too. Sometimes in, sometimes we just, you see, we're, we're pure beings. According to Vedic philosophy, we're, there's a pure soul theory. We are pure beings. Yeah. But just like if I'm sitting out my window right now and the window is got a bunch of eggs thrown at it, but I can't barely see what's going on. If someone painted the window red, everything appears red outside. If someone paints it yellow, everything appears yellow. So according on the, the, the coloring of my lenses of how I see the world, how I see myself, that, that could be a problem. Not because I'm not pure, but because the lens of my mind has been colored mm. by previous experience. It could be my father abandoned me. It could be my father beat me. So these things, even a modern psychiatrist would say, yeah, these childhood traumas, they've left an effect on your consciousness and how you see the world, yeah. the people you choose to be, uh, you know, choose to be in relationship with, um, your your lack of self worth. Now the yogis take it another step further. They say, well, you, that father that was abusive, you chose him. You know, you've been making these choices for lifetime. So you got there's like a primordial issue you got. It's not just didn't happen from your father. Right. You've been making these choices. You're responsible for these choices, believe it or not. So um, anyway, to take this a step further is um, we, due to our own lack of self-worth sometimes, we choose people that um, are like predators. Mm -hmm. People are preying on us and that we should have high fences. And I give the example of the sheep. We have electric fence. To contain them, not because the sheep are evil, but because predators want to come in because they're so helpless and they'll kill them, they'll rip them apart. Right. You know, um, there's coyotes around. 
um, or bobcats or something, and the sheep are so helpless. So you keep an electric fence to keep the predator out, but sometimes the sheep do their big wool and will knock the fence over, and then any predator to get in. And so I said this thing like, have you ever dated somebody just because you were lonely? Right, yeah, yeah. And then the thing was like, better to be lonely. Better just to be and sit with lonely than to let a predator in or someone who's not qualified to date you because we forget that we have worth and we shouldn't just throw ourselves out there to anybody who finds us interesting. Oh, you find me interesting? I'll date you. We have to have high uh, standards of who we let into our life, who we let into our home, who we let into our bed, who we let into our hearts. These are We have to raise that bar yeah. instead of like – I'm lonely. I'm going to take anybody. We need a very high electric fence because the problem. Next, the problem with predators once you let them in, it's hard to get them out. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes we get wrapped up in these bad relationships that started bad, and you're in there eight years. You know. Uh, we've been around the block a little bit. We know the story with this one. All too well. <laughs> analogy that was my sheep analogy well i loved it but all right so let's get back to that and thank you for sharing that because i think that's very important i know a lot of the audience i'm sure can relate um many of us even right now as we're listening are probably in relationships that you know are not serving our highest self but uh so it's always nice to at least hear that maybe plant a seed but i definitely want to talk to you about you know you mentioned becoming a renunciant monk for about six years and, you know, shelter. And, and we started to go down that road. And in that time, I'm assuming you starting to practice yoga or continuing to practice yoga. And here you are now like a, a well-respected, celebrated yoga teacher. So if you don't mind talking a little bit about that journey, you know, so we started Youth of Today and here you are now still doing those reunion shows, but now you're also teaching yoga. You know, you're a bhakti, uh, kirtan musician and, uh, I'd love to hear a bit about that experience. Um, so I always practiced yoga even before I lived in the ashram, sure. and which was a it was a unique thing back then because I knew Jiva Mukti Yoga and I knew Dharma Mitra, who was my yoga teacher, and Integral Yoga. Those are the three yoga schools I've ever heard of in New York City. Yeah. Now everybody runs a yoga school. Of There's course. A, you know, and not only that, yoga has become incredibly secularized where it's just sort of like a flow class. We're in a flow class and there's an overall feeling of um, uh, endorphins release and a feeling of a high after yoga and I'm laying in shavasana and the teacher speaks in a very quiet voice and says shanti a few times or a couple of like love yourself. And But I wasn't drawn to yoga to do hand – I mean – I do. I teach all that tricky handstands and advanced asanas. That's not why I was drawn to yoga. I was never like an athlete, you know, type. Um, I wanted. I loved the ancient literature of yoga, the books on yoga, what the sages taught about yoga. That was my. That was my in. You know, I love the concept of meditation, um, uh, of, uh, of chanting, of kirtan of, you know, uh, that, that, that there's one divine being in religion, all religions meant to get to that divine being. There's no, no one's got a monopoly on divinity. You know, I, that's how I just sort of in internally sort of grew up with it. Um, and so that was why I wanted to know about yoga. I wanted to learn about sacred literature. I got into yoga because I first heard about Ayurveda because I had a calling to be a vegetarian when I was 18 
no one, you know, not many people were vegetarians back then. Um, so it was a very sort of unique calling. But I just had this concept like, wait a second, I like dogs and cats. Why would I see them as people with these other animals as commodities? It seemed to, it seemed to me like I was creating like a, you know, a uh, sociopath's mind. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. One sense, I'm like, oh, you are the my best friend. And another sense, like you. You are a commodity. You, I'm going to eat your corpse, and you, I'm going to pet your corpse. It, it didn't. It, I started realizing, like, wait a second, this isn't good for my brain to think like this. I, and so I, I, what do you call it? But I was Italian from a big Italian family, and I didn't know how to cook. And so I just said, well, when I move out of my mom's house, I'm not. I'm gonna, you know, not eat meat anymore. And so uh, uh, that was my sort of like beginning into vegetarianism when I turned 18. Um, so then I got into Ayurveda cause I needed some type of, you know, I was in New York city and, um, I, there was probably Dr. Vasant Lodz only book out printed in English on Ayurveda, but I knew the Indians for a long time were vegetarian. So I wanted to figure out how to be a vegetarian. So I started studying Ayurveda, took some classes in Ayurveda. It was back like in 1986 or something or it's unbelievable. And then, uh, I, I from then I was like, man, I wonder what, I want to hear what these yogis say about spirituality. That's why I started to go to yoga classes. I didn't really care about doing a headstand. I really cared about my spiritual life. And um, that's sort of what drew me to, um, you know, ultimately moving to an ashram when I was 22. You know, it was a it was a, a healthy blend of misery and joy. I can't just say joy. It was sort of like excitement. My band got really popular. For a kid who's never done anything like that, that was like really fascinating. Yeah. Putting out records, you know, you'd call it material success. And then on the other side, my father got sick very suddenly, and he went into a coma for three years. And it was really shocking when, if you've never experienced any type of like real heavy loss, that was incredible for me yeah. to just swallow when I was nineteen, like. No one knows if he's dead or alive. It's devastating. What it, you know, it, it, it was just really shocking for me. In one sense, you see the hope of material reality, and then you see like how the the rug can get pulled out from you almost overnight. And I was really, really, in sh- I was really sort of just like awakening to my spiritual life. Like, what could I, what what is what if I die? Mm-hmm. Are we all going to die? Make me think about my own temporality. You never until you really, and you know we've all had different experience. Some people experience that loss at five. Some people have like everything's very solid in their life till they hit thirty-five, perhaps. But then when our our parents die, perhaps, or we had a loved one that dies, it's like our whole world gets shook, shaken yeah. up. So for me, that happened to me at nineteen, and um, by the time he did leave his body, I was very focused on my spiritual life, and I I, I went to India then. Um, that was in 1988. And so I always continued my yoga practice. And then when I moved out of the ashram, I started getting very interested in more of like a physical practice. And, um, I never really thought about teaching yoga. I just enjoyed it. And then one, and I was, I truthfully, I just like to live like a yogi, yeah. you know, I never thought about it because I still was doing music I, and yoga was just my was my life. I never thought of it as a career. Yeah. Um, and then I was living in LA at the time and, 
really just doing yoga six days a week. I did yoga and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. That's all I did really. And um, I would tour for a few months a year, make a chunk of money and just, you know, do yoga and jiu-jitsu all day. I mean, that was like sort of like life I led. That was the pre-kid life I led. <laughs> I started getting to turning into uh, turning. Someone asked me to sub substitute class. Some yoga teacher in Los Angeles, really nice lady, asked me to sub her classes. And I thought, sure, I'll sub. But I, but I, I would like to do it my way. I don't know where you teach, but I like to do it my way. I like to bring a harmonium. I like to chant. That's how I teach. And she was like, I don't know. Chanting might be a little peculiar. In the, I teach at like Sports Club LA. I teach at Equinox. I teach it. I was like, well, that's the way I'm going to teach. And you know, whenever you chant in class or speak philosophical in class, there's always people, if they just want to work out, it's always like, what the hell are you doing? Right. But there's some people that are like, oh, that was pretty nice. And after a while, I just realized like, it was probably after my second class I started. Actually, I love doing this exponentially more than I love doing music, I, than being in a band. Yeah. Like I actually don't even enjoy being in a band that much. I enjoy, I enjoy, um, just speaking. You know what I mean? And being a yoga teacher, when people are actually looking for that stuff, and after a while, the people that know what you're about, they either come to you or they just stay away from you. Right. You know, you know what I mean. If they know you're going to speak on philosophy and you're going to chant in class. If they like that, they come. If they don't like that, they stay away. You know, and it attracts the right people to you. So I just started doing my own thing and living like so, and it was great because I got to integrate my um, my years of study and my passion for the lifestyle of a yogi into just like doing that on a regular basis. Was it? It was and still is, you know, incredibly pleasurable. And I think the um, your time, you know, in your bands didn't hurt either, because I remember taking that workshop with you at uh, Snowshoe, the one where you were telling stories and chanting, and it was beautiful. But I remember thinking, like, this man has a lot of, you know, stage presence in him. You know, like you're the front, the front man of many bands. Like, I'm sure you've got to know that that has impacted you in some way. Like. You know how to, I don't want to say work the crowd because you're not. I know you're coming from a heart space, but you, like you were saying earlier, it's not a bad thing to have that charisma. And I mean, where else can you develop? Well, you can develop it in a lot of places, but I mean, on stage, you know, like you develop it up there, your passion. And, and I noticed that, you know, when I took your class. Sometimes you play a show for three people. Some, yeah. I play shows in front of 200,000 people. It's just like you learn how to. Yeah, you learn how to – truthfully, it's a, it's a simple art of public speaking, which yeah. very interestingly enough, people can – you know, the number big, the number one biggest fear in the world is public speaking. Over death. Number two fear <laughs> is death. Number two, people would rather be That's dead. nuts. I know. So for me, I was always pretty comfortable pe- speaking publicly and I was forced to do it. Yeah. But, you know – you have a lot of. Prep. I, I know I teach people to be yoga teachers, so that's one of the big things. It's not doing the yoga asanas or how to teaching the yoga asanas or how to assist the poses. How do you get up in front of thirty people and not just like freeze up? Yeah. So, and that's just a practice too. Right. Yeah. yeah. I remember there's a story Tara Brock had sh- uh, shared in one of her books. I think Radical Acceptance about a teacher who got up on stage and he completely froze and he just naturally went back to his breath. 
because he'd been meditating for so many years. He'd actually forgotten where he was. It was like a really bad experience. And then he came back and then he just gently, I don't know if it's five, 10 minutes, started his Dharma talk. You know, it's because that was his natural way of being like years and years and years. That's what he came back to without forcing it. And that's how cool is that, man? Like you come back. Right. Right. You just apply what you've been doing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we have about like 10 minutes left and I know you just launched your new website. I know you take tours to India. I want to take the rest of this time to kind of open it up to you. And and what would you like to talk about? I know, first of all, I know you have a ton of stuff coming up. I was looking at your website. Um, Can you share the address with the audience? Uh, Raghunath, R-A-G-H-U-N-A-T-H, Raghunath dot yoga thanks and now, I, you know, dot yoga instead of a dot com Isn't i love that you got dot yoga and i'll have that listed for our audience whether you're listening thanks. or watching we'll list that and but. Um, when I, you know we uh, we just opened this farm so we have different events ha- happening at the farm which are pretty cool we do a sadhu training which is a, it's a men's retreat where we just go up in the woods and we learn primal skills cool. as well as kirtan and chanting and meditation and uh you know sleeping under the stars we do like uh, bhakti study weekends. We study. We just had one called Chant Camp, which is uh, the study of uh, uh, musical instruments and kirtan. Um, we're doing another bhakti immersion in August. Basically, you know, sacred literature, kirtan, yeah. where you get to just take a week, big fat weekend off and just dive into this stuff. And they're all incredibly joyous. Yeah, I mean, really, really fun you you walk away everyone's like in, in a very blissful state um i'm doing some teachings what one of my big ones is and it just sold out is my and it sells out every year but it's one of my favorite things is taking groups on pilgrimage throughout india we just opened up one our 2018 trip um and that's my favorite thing is going to all my favorite places in india and then i tell the stories of these places what you do here otherwise what happens when you go to india is you just sort of like park it in a retreat center do some yoga class with your yoga teacher and visit the Taj Mahal or something like that. Either go as a tourist, you go to your yoga teacher and you stay somewhere in South India and go to the beach. To me, I don't want to go as a tourist. I don't want to go as a backpacker. I want to go as a pilgrim. And that's how I went. And so I trained the students how to go as a pilgrim. And we go to these sacred pilgrimage spots. It's very, very magical. Yeah. And then January I do, for those who are 200-hour teachers, I do a really special, like unprecedented uh, 200 hour, or, or I'm sorry, a 300 hour makes them a 500 hour teacher, uh, training in January. And I do that with my teacher, Radnath Swami, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, who if you haven't read it, wrote that great book, a journey home, mm. which was his story about an American swam American coming to India in the sixties. Um, and his experience living in the Himalayas and et cetera, meeting Maharaji, uh, meeting Swami Prabhupada and living with so many sadhus. It's a very beautiful story. Um, but anyway, I do that training and he's a, ge- a special guest. We train people in music for the month. We do um, Ayurvedic cooking, Ayurveda for yoga teachers. Um, and I bring a bunch of really powerful uh, sacred literature, mm-hmm. uh, advanced hands-on assists, as well as asana, pranayama, mudra, etc. So it's really a beautiful one-month study in india too just be careful of the monkeys <laughs> yeah <laughs> I tell the monkey stories. you told so many great monkey stories and and like you said you could fill a whole class write a, write a book on monkey stories 
Just be careful of the monkeys. <laughs> but, you know, I do want to say one oh, other thing. Did I tell you the story where I got closed fist punched by a monkey once? No, close you fist. literally punched. Yeah. By... <laughs> right in the chest. No, you told the one about him taking your sandal out of a store and you bartering to get it back, but it's I did not hear sandal. about it. I thought I had it with me. It's got a bite mark still in it. Oh, you got jacked up by a monkey, though. I'm sorry to hear that, man. I was really excited. I was really <laughs> excited because I thought Sanook was going to be at Wonderlust because they gave me free Sanook sandals uh, and, and uh, last year. And uh, they didn't this year. And I was upset because my sandals have a big monkey bite out of them. <laughs> it took like a whole bartering system with me and the shop owner of like offering him a banana and a chigu, another type of you know, sapote or whatever to, with the monkey to try to get that sandal back. And even, <laughs> still, even still, he took a bite out of it. That's monkeys. damn monkeys. <laughs> um, but you know, you did say one thing I wanted to, to share before we closed on it. And, and maybe you can share some thoughts on this, but I really appreciated how you'd said in that class as well. You know, a lot of people were very grateful to you. You, you're obviously very well versed in what you've studied and you're a wonderful bhakti, um, and a lot of people were thanking you and thanking you for your authenticity and your integrity. And I remember you said, well, don't thank me, thank my teachers. And that just like struck such a chord with me because for me, when people thank me, it's a self-worth thing. It's like, a, I don't deserve it. Um, you know, I, I'm still a shitty human being. But when you said that, it was like, wow, like, yeah, man, thank my teachers that taught me. Um, I love if you have any, maybe we could close on that. Any comments or thoughts on that? It's a powerful teaching um, that I teach and yeah. I teach it because my teachers taught it to me is that we don't embrace praise. Mm. We dodge it. Yeah. Our biggest issue in yoga is not our tight hips. It's not our lower back. It's not our tight neck. It's not my flabby, whatever. It's my ego. And so instead of being sniffing around for praise, we do what's appropriate and honest and real is if you like something about me, it's because I got it from somebody else. If you like something. Now, I've had people say to me, no, Raghunath, I've heard your teacher say this, but it's the way you say it that I really love. And I get that because it's coming out of the Raghunath vehicle and maybe they wouldn't relate to my teacher. But in my heart, if it wasn't for my teacher, you would get a much different version of me. Mm -hmm. And I remember that version of me. So in that sense, I will give the praise back to my teacher because the teacher becomes like what you ever see those guys who, you know, work the trains, you know, they just, you know, the trains come down the track. There's a little man in a booth and he pulls a lever and instead of going south, now the train's going north. Yeah. He just wrecks. So like I was saying before, you have charm. You have charisma, you have musical ability, you have artistic ability, you have, you know, you have intelligence. It's not like the teacher gave you that, but what the teacher does is taught you how to engage that towards light instead of darkness. The way culture was teaching me and my ego was fueling me, I was taking all those good qualities and using them in a way that was not uplifting, which, which was not cleansing my consciousness it was degrading my consciousness mm. so yeah we do thank the teacher not because he gave me musical ability but he showed me what to sing about yeah not because he gave me great intelligence but he greatly taught me how what to study or he she taught me what to study not because they gave me great artistic ability but they taught me what to paint and how, how the mood should be behind the paint so yeah we always offer our prayers to our teachers three times a day morning noon and night to remember, especially when I go into a yoga class, 
You know, sometimes I'll teach a class in a weird place I never go and maybe pack with people. It's very easy for my ego to go, yeah, I'm very cool. Look at all these people. I must be doing something. But it's not – that's the red flag should go up. It should be by the mercy of my teacher. These people are here. How can I serve them? In, right. Or I think of even better than that. I think these people were sent by my teacher for me to take care of, for me to love. Mm. It's a nicer way to look at it. And that. that indemnifies me from that ego that wants to catch me, you know, mm. and it keeps me in the mood of I'm doing this in service. And therefore, if it, if it's a packed class or a packed, you know, concert or something, or if there's one person there or three person, you feel like this is what has been sent to me today to take care of and to love and to nurture, you know, now you're indemnified from, oh, there's only one person. I suck. Yeah. There's a million people. I'm the best, and I'm. You don't. Who wants to ride that roller coaster? Yeah. I'm the best. I'm the worst. Like it's old quick. I'm here to give love. And that you are, my friend. And that's <laughs> a great, uh, great lesson that I I took home with me from Wanderlust, and I've uh, kept close to my heart in talks I've given since. And uh, and remember, uh, it's very important. So, thank you for that wisdom amongst. Keep up the good uh, work yourself. I'm looking forward to connect again and yeah. come up and visit. You know I will, sir. We'll get that together with Kylie, and we'll uh, we'll have a little powwow up there, and it'll be great. So looking forward. Yeah, Raga Yoga or SupersoulYoga.com. Cool. You can get arm links there. Great. We'll have it all linked up on the page, um, and I will definitely at a later date have you back on the show because I know we just began to scratch the surface of really what we could get into. But uh, this is a great, I think, introductory uh, session. We've only just begun. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right, my friend. My brother, great to see you. I'm looking you forward to so. coming up and hanging out. Absolutely. Very soon. Be well, my friend. All right, ciao. Take care. Howdy, howdy. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.